Let's pray together. And you can sit down if most of you are sitting down. That's okay. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you today, and you have heard our hearts cry that we want glory to go to you. Lord, you know what we walk through here on this earth and the, the trials and joys and everything in between. And Lord, we pray that you would be working in each one of our circumstances, each one of our situations, to grow us more into your likeness, to show us your love. And we pray that even in those times when it's hard, that we would trust in you. That as we see a physical spring coming around us and the warmth and we hear the birds singing, it reminds us that a spring will come for this world. And Lord, we look forward to that day. Would you speak to us now through your word, by the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I need to warn you about something, though it's likely something that you're already aware of. And that is, that if you're not careful, you will drift or deteriorate in your faith, if not destroy it altogether. At the bare minimum, you certainly will not grow in your faith as God desires us to. The, the pull of our fleshly desires is too strong and our apathetic comfort is too enjoyable. As Don Carson has aptly put it, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. Such is the nature, though, of things in a world of corruption, degeneration, and entropy. Like if we neglect to attend to a garden, it gets overrun with weeds, crops fail. If we ignore our physical health, our bodies grow weak or sick or vulnerable. And if we do not carefully attend to our spiritual health and faith, we will decline. I want to challenge you today with this question. Are you living carefully or carelessly? And we're so busy in our lives that it can be difficult to even notice one way or the other. So today I want to provide you a moment of time to pause, listen, and think, to examine yourself, to ask, where am I at with the Lord today? How am I doing? As we've recently seen in our series through Ephesians, there are very real dangers to our faith. Dangers of immorality and impurity, dangers of idolatry and greed and much more. And even if we've been saved by Jesus with his light shining into our lives, we're still living in a dark, evil world. And so we still need 
to watch our step. Please open up a Bible to Ephesians 5 at this time. Ephesians chapter 5. It's crucial to remember as we come to this text where it falls in the book of Ephesians. Or else, it might sound like a simple, even superficial to-do list. Okay? If you recall, chapters 1 to 3 of Ephesians gave us this wonderful deep dive into the gospel. God's good news. How God the Father has loved his people from eternity past. How God the Son has saved his people by grace and mercy through his blood. How God the Spirit has sealed his people to receive all that God promises us. And how now that we're in Christ, we're also bound to the people of God, the church. And chapters 4 to 6 go on to describe how this gospel should now play out in our lives. How we have a calling to live in humility and gentleness and patience, love, unity, peace. And on the flip side, how to avoid falsehood and immorality and covetousness. Essentially, how we forsake the dark and live in the light. As it said in our most recent passage, you can follow along with me from verse 8. It said, walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And the order of all of this was vital. As we are saved by grace, not saved by our behavior. So we don't work hard or obey faithfully to earn God's love or favor. No, we work hard and obey faithfully out of God's love and favor. Today's passage continues this theme of how the gospel changes our lives and our lifestyles. These verses have actually been called a, a summary climax of chapters 4 to 6. They further explain how to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we've received. So, right after saying how Christ's light has shone into our lives, verse 15 tells us, look at it with me, it says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Again, there's the metaphor of walking to describe how we're living our lives. But there's an added nuance here of walking carefully. Walking carefully. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Another translation says to be very careful then how you live. You might picture needing to walk across a busy street or an intersection trying to or trying to pick your way along a, a treacherous mountain path or hiking path or trying to maybe hop along stepping stones across a river in each of those scenarios 
You need to choose carefully where to place your feet. There are potential dangers, dire dangers with every step you take, whether from slipping into rapids, tripping down a cliff, or getting hit by a bus. But you can avoid these dangers by alertly and vigilantly watching your step, where you're going. And likewise, you can face potential dangers every single day, spiritually speaking, things that can trip you up or make you slip or hit you head on. No matter where you are, don't even need to leave your house. And this calls for wisdom. We need to know what the dangers are and where they lie, where not to step. And we need to know how to positively live instead, where we should be stepping. Which is why Paul pairs careful walking with wisdom here. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Or as Eugene Peterson paraphrases in the message, so watch your step, use your head. And I ask us, are we living carefully or carelessly today? Are we paying attention to our surroundings? Are we aware of the dangers around us? Or are we walking with intentionality and love and light and wisdom? You might be wondering, well, how do we do this? How should we be watching our step? Well, I think that there are three clear ways that we can see in this text for how to carefully walk. I believe the first, thing, the first key thing that we can take away is that we need to watch our step by using time wisely. And using time wisely. We need to watch our step by using time wisely. Look how this sentence continues here. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Now note that it doesn't just say to make good use of our time, but the best use of our time. And this would imply that it's a dangerous misstep is when we use time unwisely. Time is arguably our most precious commodity in life. Think about it. Money and wealth can dwindle or be lost, but they can also increase and be gained. There are many ways to lose and regain our health. We exhaust our energy every day, but sleep replenishes it over and over again. But time, when you spend your time, you can never get it back. It's gone. In his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, John Mark Comer puts a twist on this by claiming that our most precious, scarcest resources actually are attention. Our attention. Because, he says, attention leads to awareness. And what you give your attention to is the person you become. Put another way, the mind is the portal to the soul, and what you fill your mind with will shape the tra trajectory of your character. In the end, your life is no more than the sum of what you gave your attention to. Of course, time and attention are 
very closely related there. I could just as well say your life is no more than the sum of what you spend your time on. But I find it interesting because it makes sense of why Paul would say to use time wisely. If we fill our mind's attention with wisdom, we will make wise uses of our time. One will instinctively lead to the other. So you could ask, what are you filling your mind with? What has your attention these days? Hold that thought. When Paul says, making the best use of the time, he uses a term also translated as redeem. So you might hear of redeeming the time. Literally, it means something like buying up time or gaining time. Now, like I said, you can't actually buy more time in your life. We have limited lifespans, and we all get the same 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. But you can take time that would have been spent otherwise and use it in better ways. And it's in this sense that we can redeem or make the most of, the best use of our time. As one scholar says, believers will act wisely by snapping up every opportunity that comes. And why should we do this? Because these are desperate times. Did you see that? Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. The days are evil. The dangers are real. And at the same time, we're different now. Like, if you believe in Jesus, like we are holy in an evil time. We are light in a dark place. And therefore, our use of time ought to reflect who we are now. I think Andrew Sullivan is onto something when he suggests that the greatest threat to faith today is not hedonism, but distraction. And when we stop and consider how we're actually using our time, what holds our attention? That bears out. The amount of time that we spend on our smartphones is staggering. Streaming videos, video games, social media suck up much of our free time. And if you aren't sucked in by them, you're likely sucked in by something else. Books or games or sports or food or social outings, you name it. Now, none of those things, don't mishear me, none of those things are inherently bad. Some of them can be genuinely good. But, when they're out of balance, as they often are, is when they're a problem. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated or mastered by anything. Biblical way to say, all things in moderation. Consider, no, are your daily activities in moderation, or are they dominating your time? We need not fear these evil days, but we do need to live wisely in the midst of them, taking advantage of every opportunity we have to please the Lord with our lives. 
And that really is, should be the driving motivation for us. Pleasing the God who redeems us from evil. Look at it. In verse 17, it says, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So don't be foolish. Don't act thoughtlessly, carelessly, or unthinkingly. Instead, we need to seek out and learn and understand what pleases the Lord. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, there is a common misconception about the will of God in Christian circles today. And that's that we need to figure out or decipher what God's will is for us individually. Like, what's his will for us and where to live? Or what career to pursue? Or who to marry? Things like that. I don't believe that this is a biblical or actually even a wise way to understand the will of God at all. And we actually have a lot of freedom in making those kinds of decisions. What Paul's talking about here is not that. He's talking about what could be called the moral will of God or how God wants us to live morally speaking. So with love and purity and righteousness, repentance, joy, self-control, etc. That's the will of the Lord that we need to know and learn and understand. And the good news is that that is already and readily available to us. Ephesians 1 told us that when God lavished his grace on us in Christ, he also, quote, in wisdom and insight made known to us the mystery of his will. So now, having our eyes open to the will of God, we're to appropriate it more and more, to know it more and more. In light of this, I want you to consider two things. First, is the Spirit convicting you of any specific foolish use of time in your life? If so, you need to make some changes, set up some boundaries, tweak some settings, get some accountability, even repent of sin in these areas. But second, and perhaps more importantly in the long run, is how might you pursue wisdom? Because the wiser we become, the more naturally we'll use time wisely. So are you filling your mind with the will of God as revealed in the word of God? And do you know what God wants or how God wants you to live today? Do you know what to replace the foolish or frivolous stuff with? What are wise ways to carefully use your time? If you need help talking that through or anything, we'd love to help you with that. We're not perfect here. I can easily be distracted by many second best things in life. But we can help each other to learn to wisely make the best use of time, the time that God gives us. They may have noticed a, a pattern in what Paul is saying in this passage. 
He says to not live in a certain way, but to live in another way instead. So not this, but this. So not as unwise, but as wise. Not foolish, but understanding the Lord's will. There's another contrast in the next verse, which gives us a second way to watch our step. It says in verse 18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So what do we see? that we need to watch our step by yielding control appropriately. We need to watch our step by yielding control appropriately. In other words, we need to be very careful what we allow to control us. There are good and bad influences. First he says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Debauchery refers to excessive indulgence in sensual pleasures. Now, in the Bible, wine is often used as a symbol for joy. Right? To, and to drink alcoholic drinks like wine was not wrong at all. Jesus did it, too. However, they had to be consumed with wisdom because you could easily go too far. And drunkenness was foolish at best, sinful, degrading, and destructive at worst. What makes getting drink, drunk wrong? Well, on the foolish side, it, it lowers our inhibitions, and we're liable to do things we never do otherwise. On the sinful side, it has the ability to enslave or control us. And remember, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Christ is our Lord and Master. Alcohol's not. And therefore, we must not let something else be our Lord and control us. I believe that this principle would extend today to plenty of other influential or addictive substances. Cannabis, tobacco, cocaine, opioids, and psychedelic drugs. Like anything that we would allow to control our bodies and minds. Now, if you need help or you do know someone who needs help, like what a day to have Teen Challenge here. We didn't plan that, actually. It's totally... God's will that happened. <laughs> but there's help for you. We must not let other things besides Christ control. So not this, but this. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, which is a command, not a recommendation or suggestion. So Paul contrasts the Spirit with wine saying we can be filled with either one. I believe that this refers to being influenced or controlled by one or the other. However, some would say that this means we should get drunk with the Spirit in some way. In some churches, you'll see people losing control of themselves or their bodies, staggering, slurring, and claiming to be under the Spirit's power. That's not this. Okay, because no, being controlled by the Spirit actually leads to greater self-control, not less. Think of the fruit of the Spirit. Sam Storms, quoting Gordon Fee, says this, 
Paul envisions a community of people whose lives are so totally given over to the Spirit that the life and deeds of the Spirit are as obvious in their case as the effects of too much wine are obvious in the other. Now, we believe that the Holy Spirit is given to believers at conversion when we're saved. We're already indwelt by and sealed by the Spirit. But here we're told something else, to be filled with. That's an ongoing present tense. Literally, be filled continually with the Spirit. So what does that mean? Well, while we can never lose the Spirit or be emptied of Him, there is an experiential sense in which we can be filled more or less with his presence, and we can be more or less controlled by his leading. Perhaps like a a gas tank in a vehicle can run low on fuel, but then be filled up again. Or a phone can run low on battery, but then be fully charged again. Like we believers need continually be refreshed and renewed. So are we pursuing that in our lives? One pastor says being filled with the Spirit is being pressured, permeated, and dominated by Him. I think it's actually helpful to compare it again to the image of consuming alcohol. Shelby Abbott explains it this way. says that when someone moves from being sober to being drunk, we see three steps. Choice, control, and change. A person makes a choice to consume alcohol, and as he does, he gives control of his life to the influence of the alcohol. Consequently, he is changed in his behavior, his speech, even his thoughts. In comparison, a Christian makes a choice to follow the Holy Spirit. When she makes that choice, she submits control of her life to his direction, power, and authority, and as a result, her life is changed to the glory of God. You really need to to demystify being filled with the Spirit. It isn't some elusive, super spiritual state. It's much simpler. Like when we hear from God's Spirit, usually through God's Word, we choose then to submit our life to Him. We yield control, letting Him lead us, and we are thus changed more and more into the image of God's Son. Like it's something that many of you might be doing right now in these very moments. Letting yourself be filled. There's one other strange part to all this. We're not told to fill ourselves up with the Spirit. We're told to be filled with the Spirit. Who does the filling here? The Spirit. So, how in the world are we supposed to obey a passive command? Like... For example, if I told you to go hug a stranger, you could do that, right? But if I told you to go be hugged by a stranger, that'd be harder to do. Another aspect, like we wonder if if spirit filling is more of a, a habit that we do or is it an experience that we feel? Maybe both. Andrew Wilson helps answer this by using another biblical image for the Spirit, breath or wind. He says to think of going sailing on a boat. 
Okay, he says, catching the wind on a sailing boat is clearly an experience in which you are seized and carried forward by a mighty power from elsewhere. You rely entirely on the external power to get you anywhere, and no sailor imagines themselves to be powering the boat in their own strength. At the same time, catching the wind is also a habit. If you don't put the sails up, pull the main sheet fast, or adjust the jib, the wind may be blowing powerfully, but you won't go anywhere. You have to respond attentively to whatever the wind is doing, and that comes through awareness and skill and cultivating good habits. Sailing, in that sense, is the art of attentive responsiveness to an external power. And likewise, the spirit or wind and breath is mighty and powerful and brings life-changing experiences, but we are responsible for aligning ourselves with him and learning from him. I hope that picture helps you. It helped me wrap my head around like what I must do to do this. Say, like I must put myself in the path of God's presence on a regular, ongoing basis in his word, in prayer, in church with God's people, and then raise my sails and let him blow. In, that, in the case we want to know what this looks like when it happens, Paul tells us right away. Verse 19 to 21, describe what the spirit-filled life looks like. Or more specifically, what the spirit-filled community looks like. Look at it. It says, be filled with the spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's the spirit-filled community. And in turn, I believe these things help us in actually being careful to walk wisely in this life. Technically, there are more effects than causes. But I think it's all interconnected. Like worship helps us live circumspectly and guard against the dangers of evil days. How so? Well, it keeps our attention fixed in the right place or in the right person. And so, we need to watch our step by worshiping together gratefully. We need to watch our step by worshiping together gratefully. That's how I would summarize those three verses for you. But there's actually four commands given here. Okay, command number one, singing to one another. Okay, verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, we don't know exactly what the differences were between psalms and hymns and spiritual songs in Paul's day. At the least, though, this shows that there can and should be variety in the songs we sing. We learn here, though, that there is a a horizontal dimension to our corporate worship. We aren't just told to, to sing by ourselves, after all. We're told to address one another in song. I think this is because singing truth to one another is a powerful way that we can edify, instruct, exhort, and encourage one another. And God is still very much exalted and praised through it. 
For example, when we sing, as we did earlier, in times of waiting, times of need, when I know loss, when I am weak, I know his grace will renew these days. The Lord is my salvation. We're singing about the Lord. But who are we actually primarily singing to? Or addressing one another, right? Telling each other that our trust is in him which both encourages our own hearts to trust him more and encourages others to trust him as well. And when we're embedded in a community together singing these truths, it means even more when I can look around and know that this isn't just theoretical. Right? I know, like, oh man, they're in a time of need right now. They're in a season of waiting right now. Or maybe they've recently known great loss. Or I know that person's been very weak. Or maybe I've been weak lately. But we are trusting together that God's grace is going to renew these days. And, we, and we're confessing together that the Lord is our salvation. Glory to him. Command number two is singing to God, which can be done at the same time as singing to others. But this is even more so worshiping him with our heart, as it says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, which doesn't refer to silent worship, but whole being worship. So we should be singing with both our mouths and our hearts, audibly and spiritually. And this is the vertical dimension of worship, addressing God directly, like we do when we sing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, all thy work shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. He's the center of the universe after all, not us. We gather to Worship him because he's wholly worthy of our praise. As we make melody to the Lord, it can be a beautiful thing, even if we can't carry a tune. Our voices and our hearts are pleasing to God. And, as we see here, it's an expression of being filled with the Spirit. Command number three is giving thanks to God. Giving thanks to God. Really expansively. It says, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, giving thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ doesn't just mean tacking in Jesus' name at the end of our prayers. It means acknowledging him and what he's accomplished through the gospel. So who he is and what he's done should shape all of our gratitude. Like we thank God in Jesus' name because without Jesus, we'd have nothing. And with him, we have everything. But we live in a world that has forgotten how to be grateful. 
In the Bible, and the Bible actually says that that's one of the root causes of all our idolatry and sin. Because we're not, we haven't thanked God. You may be there today, not even realizing how much you have to be grateful for to God. And thus you have ignored him or turned your back on him. The fact that Jesus died for you shows you that God loves you and wants you back. That he gave up everything so that we can receive his grace and his righteousness and his life. And the fact that Jesus rose from the dead proves that he can save you from all your sin and death and hell and give you everything. So I hope and I pray that after as it says here, looking carefully how you're living today. You come to realize, I need Jesus. I, I want him to be my Lord and my master. I want his spirit to fill me. If you can make that decision right where you're sitting today, I hope you will. Pray to him. Ask him to forgive you and save you, and change you. And he will. The rest of us, even though we don't need to be saved again, are still learning as we mature more and more just how much we need Jesus every single day. And that's why we can be thankful every single day because we have Jesus. Always, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, always and for everything is talking about the frequency and constancy of gratitude, not so much the comprehensiveness of gratitude. And what I mean by that is there are things in our fallen world for which it would be perverse to be thankful. For example, should we give thanks for war, for disease, abuse, adultery, sin of any kind? No, we cannot be both filled with the Spirit and praise Him for what He hates. To put it another way, there are plenty of things in life that we shouldn't be grateful for. But there is nothing that we cannot be grateful through. Okay? Because being filled with the Spirit does call for radical, expansive gratitude. And we can be thankful for the way even hard things drive us into the arms of Christ produce good fruits of Christ's character in us and, and fill us with perseverance and hope in him. Brian Chappell explains, we give thanks even for the darkness that makes the glory of Christ's name more evident. The thanksgiving, however, is not for the horrors of a fallen world, but for the name of the Savior that alone can answer and redeem those horrors. So, whether you're going through Happy or hard times right now? Are you grateful? 
thankful for Jesus, all that he's given you. It's worth setting some time aside today. Talk about redeeming the time to stop, sit still, and give thanks. To, to consider what you have to be thankful for and then actually thank God for it. And finally, command number four is submitting to one another. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, the topic of submission may seem to come out of nowhere here, but it doesn't if you've been following along throughout Ephesians. Because all of this is very much in the context of how to live in God's new community. And submission is part of that. Submission has to do with order and authority, placing yourself under someone else's leadership, like submitting our opinions or rights or desires to be subservient to others. Now, this does not sound fun. (laughs) It often might not be. We usually cringe at authority these days. But God did design our world to function best when authority is used well. Notice that Paul does not tell leaders, make others submit to you. No. Tells everyone, submit to one another. And why? Out of reverence for Christ. So, It's because we love and respect Jesus that we should follow those Jesus puts in leadership or authority over us. Whether that be an elder or pastor or deacon or small group leader or Sunday school teacher in a church or a spouse or parent or grandparent or older sibling in our homes. Even if these people, myself included, might not always deserve submission. We don't submit for them. We submit for Jesus out of reverence for him. And gratefully, it's people that he's placed in our lives that when authority is used well, when it's used in godly ways, can often help keep us from going astray. Therefore, Submitting to them is also a practical way for us to watch our step. Brian Chappell adds that there is an additional richness in these words in light of what has already been said. When we perceive the Spirit of God as present in his children, then submitting to them is submitting to Christ in them. And when we submit to them as Christ submitted himself for us, then we are Christ to them. So, I encourage you, don't recoil when you hear of submission. Marvel at it. Like, what a beautiful way we can express both our love for God and for one another. And let's look for opportunities to to live out this hard, happy command. So, in evil days... In a busy, frazzled world full of decline and decay, if you're not careful. But by God's grace and by God's spirit, we can indeed walk carefully and wisely. 
as we let our sails get filled up with him, he produces a life of distinct beauty. Hearts and communities that are filled with songs that resound both up and out. People that are filled with an irrepressible gratitude that just overflows at every opportunity. And churches that are filled with a, a joyful submission that is radically compelling to a world that knows nothing of it. So, pay attention. Stay sober and alert. Watch your step. The dangers are real. But, so are the joys that come as we submit our lives and our time and our voices to the one who gave us our lives and our time and our voices to begin with. Heavenly Father, please do your work in us now. Lead us in conviction and encouragement, whatever we need this morning. You see our lives. May they bring glory to you and to you alone.